everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and I'm so happy to be joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Hello, Jessica. It's June. Aside from a bunch of birthdays in your life and my life, June means a bunch of big, controversial Supreme Court decisions are coming down the pike. Today, we are going to tell you which cases you should have on your radar. We will also talk about a case that might be destined for the Supreme Court down the road, a California federal judge's decision in a big Second Amendment case. And we're going to wrap up today's episode by talking about the Department of Justice's decision to defend former President Donald Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. So, Jessica, let's go case by case so you can break down these big issues. And listeners, take note, we will be bringing you full episodes on each of these decisions when those decisions drop in the next few weeks. So let's launch into this, Jessica. Are you ready to go? This is my Super Bowl season. I am ready. Let's do this. All right, chomping at the bit, I can tell. So let's start with one that could affect millions of Americans, the Affordable Care Act case. Did the court already decide this federal law is legal or not? Yes. And in fact, I'm about to teach the first time the Affordable Care Act went up to the Supreme Court in my constitutional law class soon. But this is a new challenge to the Affordable Care Act. And very briefly, What happened is part of the Affordable Care Act is this so-called individual mandate, and it's the federal statute saying you need to buy insurance or pay a penalty. Now, the first time the Affordable Care Act was challenged, the court upheld that individual mandate saying that it looks like a tax. And the reason that it's really important that the court said it looks like a tax is that in the Constitution... Congress has taxation authority. And so that's what gave Congress the power to write that individual mandate into law. Now, what happened a number of years later is that a Republican Congress under Donald Trump said, we're zeroing out the penalty. As a result, now there is no penalty if you don't buy insurance, which means that we're not sure that this individual mandate continues to look like a tax. If there's no penalty at the end of it, if it's a zero, then it doesn't necessarily look like a tax. And then it may be the case that Congress no longer can say we have authority for this provision under our taxation power. So that is the main question. There's another question as to what will happen if the court strikes down that individual mandate. If they say it doesn't look like a tax, it's not proper under Congress's taxation authority, then what happens to the rest of the law? Will it continue to stand or will it be struck down so the entire law fails? My prediction is that the individual mandate will be struck down for the reasons we just talked about, but that the rest of the Affordable Care Act will stand. And we'll see in either a few days or a few weeks whether or not that prediction holds. Okay, so keep listening to us, folks. We will have answers for you on that. Next up, voting laws. We know that restrictive voting laws have passed in states like Georgia and Florida, and there was a kerfuffle in Texas as well, and that dozens of bills are pending in other states throughout the country. Tell us, Jessica, what is this case out of Arizona? What's it about? So it's about two main provisions in Arizona's election law. The first is a provision that says if you vote on election day in person and you go to a polling place that's out of precinct, then your entire ballot is trashed. And 
that means that it's not just the people on your ballot who you voted for where uh, it matters if you are in district or out of district, like state assembly or state senate or Congress. It means that even for races where they're statewide or they're federal races, everything on your ballot is completely junked. And the question is whether or not that's too restrictive, whether or not that survives challenge under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which we'll go into in more detail when the decision comes out. And then the other provision of this Arizona law deals with who can return your ballots if you want to vote early. This is something called ballot harvesting. We talked about it a little bit in the lead up to the 2020 election. But under Arizona law, it's a pretty limited group of people who, if you want to vote early, not in person, can return that ballot for you. And so there's also a question as to whether or not the law is too restrictive and, again, whether it violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. If you listen to oral arguments in this case, if you think about who's on the Supreme Court now, the fact that you only need five to make a majority, uh, I think this law is likely to stand, which is just, or both provisions of the law I think are likely to stand, which is just another lesson in the idea that we need federal legislation when it comes to protecting voters' rights. The, the Voting Rights Act, what's left of it, is no longer able to withstand the weight of what's happening in our country. So again, I suspect that both provisions of the law will be upheld, and it's just another indication that we need federal voting rights protections, but given everything that's happening in the country today and what's happened on Capitol Hill, I don't expect that protection to be coming soon. Alrighty, Jessica, this brings us to another case that many people have been reading about and waiting for, the so-called gay adoption case. Now, I've heard you say in some of your media hits that this one will be a bellwether for religious freedom in our country. Can you tell us why you think that is? Yeah, so this is a case where there's a city that contracts with private organizations uh, to help them place foster kids with couples. And there is one of those city contractors is a religious organization. And what they say here is we don't want to place kids with same-sex couples. Now, the city has an anti-discrimination law that says you can't make a distinction. You can't only place kids with opposite sex couples, that it's actually discrimination to say we're not going to consider these same sex couples. Now, the reason I say this is a bellwether is because this really is in a lot of ways a matchup between freedom of religion, where this organization is saying we have under the First Amendment, the right, the religious freedom to say that this anti-discrimination law violates our beliefs and we don't need to adhere to it. And laws, on the other hand, that provide protections against discrimination, and in this case, discrimination against the LGBTQ community. So I suspect, again, because it's a very conservative court that, and because of recent decisions, that we will see the court side with this Catholic agency and say that their freedom of religion rights trump the anti-discrimination law, and that we will see in future years a court that is very protective of anyone who claims that their religious rights are violated. And we, Joe, we saw this a little bit with respect to cases on the Supreme Court's so-called shadow docket, um, 
where the court made decisions about COVID restrictions. And we saw after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away that the new court was really tipped in favor of being protective of churches, other um, religious institutions that said our rights are violated as a result of these COVID restrictions. And I think that really indicates where the court's going to go with this one. Okay, thank you, Jessica. Let's move on. We have a case involving swearing cheerleaders. Jessica, aren't we allowed to swear unless we are screaming effing fire in a crowded theater? What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that this is a cheerleader who goes to public school, and there is case law to indicate that public school administrators can punish students based on their speech, and we can understand why you can't allow students in school to in you know to walk into a classroom and just start swearing up a storm and that why because it interferes with the functioning of the school and it you know it creates a problematic educational environment so we have case law that indicates if you're on campus public school administrators have some control at least over what you can say but we don't know what happens when you're off campus. And this is a cheerleader who didn't make the team that she wanted to make. And she went home, posted on social media, you know, blank cheer, blank the world, uh, and posted a picture of her middle finger. And I think this was all on Snapchat. Now, the cheerleading coach's daughter, I believe this is right, saw the snap. And as a result, she told other people, the cheerleader was suspended, and the question is whether or not the public school can essentially reach into her speech, not just on-campus speech, but off-campus speech. Now, of course, this brings up problems regarding, you know, where do you draw lines, particularly when you're talking about social media, and geography is not that important. If you listen to the oral arguments in this case, my suspicion is that the court will side with the cheerleader. I'm not sure who said her First Amendment rights were violated. I'm not sure, but it's very difficult to think about what standard would be fashioned in this case to tell people you know, when public school administrators are allowed to punish off-campus speech and when they're not. Having said that, at some point, the court will have to tackle that. All right. So we will see a ruling on one of my favorite things, which is the phrase, an expletive-laden tirade. So keep your, keep your hat on for that one. So, Jessica, let's end with this NCAA case that deals with whether or not college athletes can be compensated. Let me see if I've got this right, Jessica. The college athletes are saying that college sports is big business, and in that case, they're not wrong. In 2016, the TV rights alone for the NCAA's March Madness College Basketball Tournament was negotiated for $8.8 billion over eight years. Given how lucrative college sports has become, the athletes are arguing that they should receive a taste of that action. But the NCAA is arguing that there should be limits on compensation for athletes in the spirit of amateur sports at large, that the very nature of amateur sports is that the players aren't receiving remuneration and that the NCAA should be able to decide what they can offer their athletes, if anything. So, Jessica, am I close? What's your prediction here? Yeah, that's exactly right. So plaintiffs here are former college basketball and football athletes, and their claim is that the NCAA rules violate antitrust laws because otherwise, without these rules, uh, they would be much more highly compensated for their labor. 
And so to win on this antitrust suit, they basically have to show that the NCAA has an agreement, a contract or a conspiracy, that the agreement unreasonably restrained trade and that the restraint affected interstate commerce. Why do you have that last phrase there, interstate commerce? Well, for all of you con law fans out there, it's because there is an enumerated authority in the Constitution for Congress to make laws dealing with interstate commerce. And we can think about, as a corollary, the discussion we just had with respect to the Affordable Care Act. It's in the Constitution that Congress has taxation authority. It's in the Constitution that Congress has power over interstate commerce. And that's why you have that last hook there, that the restraint has to affect interstate commerce. So the case really boils down to two legal issues, and we're asking if the NCAA rules are necessary to keep demand for college athletics. This idea that you talked about of amateurism leads to people wanting to watch college sports. If you listen to oral arguments, I think the Supreme Court just did not buy this at all. And then would student athletes getting additional benefits cause them to not be integrated into their campuses. This is something else we heard the Supreme Court wrestle over when we listened to oral arguments over the phone. Now, in this case, what I heard from a lot of the justices is that they were worried about being the ones to make this decision in the sense that you heard not just Justice Breyer, but a couple of the justices saying, basically, I'm not sure we should get involved in this dispute. Are you just going to be back here in six months asking us, you know, how much money is enough money? How can we create a workable standard? By the same token, the justices don't really seem to buy the idea that these NCAA rules are necessary to maintain demand for college sports. So this is one where I really think to mix all of my sports metaphors, I really think that we might see the court kind of punt on this one, or they'll create a really broad standard and basically try and uh, give this some breathing room. But you did hear the justices worry, like, what standard do we create to make the determination about compensation in this case? So really interesting one. As you know, sports, not exactly my wheelhouse. Um, legal issues in the Supreme Court, hopefully much more my wheelhouse. Uh, so I will be watching and waiting for this one. A rare moment when I'm watching with bated breath anything related to a sporting event. All right, Jessica, one of these days we're going to a Lakers game. We're going to get you cured here. So That's a a hard, no, an indoor event (laughs) with hundreds of people. (laughs) How about the Dodgers someday? It's outside. It's a safer environment. Baseball's nice. You can get a hot dog. You can get some popcorn. That's a, a, a sunburn. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. We'll do. We'll do that. I'll, maybe I'll get my booster vaccine at Dodger Stadium, and then we'll go take in a game. That would be lovely. Sounds fantastic. Put that on your personal doc, Jessica. Let's move on. The next big topic for today's episode, as I mentioned, a case that could be destined for the Supreme Court in a future term. Late last week, a federal California judge ruled that California's 30-year-old assault weapons ban is unconstitutional. Now, a quick note here. The term assault weapon is a general name for a hotly contested category of weapons that includes the AR-15 and other similar weapons. These are generally rifles based on a military-grade infantry rifle. 
that use the same 5.56 by 45 millimeter ammunition as their commercially available variants. Now for our conversation, we'll be using the term assault weapon or assault rifle in the context of the weapons referred to in the California ban. Now with that house cleaning out of the way, Jessica, what else should we know about this specific opinion? Well, I've actually been asked a lot about this opinion. It's 94 pages, and it's obviously it's based on the Second Amendment, and it's based on the idea that California has violated gun owners' rights under the Second Amendment, or would-be gun owners' rights under the Second Amendment. One thing to note about the opinion, it has factual assertions that are just not correct. So page 47 of the opinion The judge erroneously claims, quote, more people have died from the COVID-19 vaccine than mass shootings in California. That's just not correct. And, you know, other parts of the opinion, the opinion starts, the first words are likening assault weapons to Swiss army knives. And, you know, I always talk to my students about this. You can tell where a judge is going often by the very first line of a case. So, you know, one of the things I've really thought about with respect to this opinion is notice that it doesn't start with an acknowledgement that there are many people who have died as a result of gun violence, that there's a reason that California decided to implement this ban. It was in the wake of a tragedy, that this is a 30-year-old ban and we can never know what would have happened without it. There's not an acknowledgement of why there used to be a federal assault weapons ban on up until 2004. And so a judge could say, I want to acknowledge the terrible things that happen as a result of mass shootings, but in this case, I'm duty bound to follow the Constitution. The Second Amendment and the Supreme Court jurisprudence under the Second Amendment indicates X. You know, instead, we have an opinion where, again, the first line is just like Swiss Army knives, and we have an opinion where they're just factual inaccuracies, like this weird assertion about vaccines. So look, what it boils down to is that it's a decision that hinges on the Second Amendment and the idea that California has gone too far. Um, You asked me, you know, basically what's going to happen. So I think it's really important for people to know, and Joe, you and I talked about this a little bit before uh, we started recording, it's really important to know that the law doesn't change today. So yes, the court struck down this ban, but the court also said, we're going to issue a temporary stay, which is very normal, while we determine whether or not the state of California will appeal. And it's, it's almost a done deal that the state of California will appeal. If you listen to what Governor Newsom and Attorney General Bonta have said as a result of this decision, they're going up to the Ninth Circuit. So what happens next? The case will be appealed to the Ninth Circuit. A three-judge panel will hear it. There can then be a request for a larger panel to hear this case, a larger panel on the Ninth Circuit. And then the case can be appealed to the Supreme Court, where, as we all know, you need four members to decide to take the case. Now, given the court's language in this case, I don't know that this is the vehicle that the Supreme Court is going to want to use to try and strengthen Second Amendment rights. I could be wrong, but there's so many cases working their way up the system. I just have this suspicion that the court will take another case. And look, if there's one thing we know, it's that this is a conservative court. A number of the members have been waiting for 
the moment to take more Second Amendment cases. And I think we're just going to continue to see more of that um, as the years with this court continue. Right, Jessica, with that 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court, I imagine that this is just one of a number of hot-button issues in the conservative laundry list that will find its way in front of the court in coming years. So before we go, Jessica, let's sneak in one more topic. This is the case of E. Jean Carroll versus Trump. The background of this case is that in June of 2019, Carroll, who is an advice columnist, journalist, and author, accused Donald Trump of sexually assaulting her at a Fifth Avenue luxury department store in New York in the mid-1990s. Trump has subsequently denied that accusation. Now, this is in the news now because the Justice Department, that's President Joe Biden's Justice Department, the new Justice Department, announced earlier this week that it will defend Donald Trump in Carroll's defamation case against the former president. Now, this seems a little surprising and perhaps disappointing to me. Jessica, am I missing something here? What else should we know? No. So I think you've got it right here. As you said, uh, Carroll argues that Trump sexually assaulted her decades ago and that by then denying it and attacking her character, he made a defamatory statement. So in this way, defamation is like a backdoor way to litigate sexual assault cases, because if the statement denying it is true, then it's not defamation. If it's false, it could give rise to defamation. So you have to figure out if the statement is true or not. Now, the Department of Justice under Trump adopted the position that they were going to defend Trump in this particular case. And there are basically two big issues. The first is, is a president covered by the same protections against being sued that are applicable to other federal employees? And then the second question is whether or not Trump was acting in the scope of his official duties when he denies this sexual assault allegation. Now, in the Department of Justice, when they said, basically, we're adopting the same position that Trump's Department of Justice adopted, they went to pains to say President Trump used crude language and really distanced themselves from what was said. But they said this is about institutionalism, and this is about protecting the institution of the Department of Justice, and really, I think, protecting the presidency. Now, my feeling here, Joe, is that I think the answer can be, is a president covered by the same protections against being sued that apply to other federal employees? I think the answer to that can, with a straight face, be yes, because, again, we're not just looking at Trump. We're looking at every other president, and we have to be mindful of that. But then the second question I just can't get over. I cannot accept the conclusion that denying the sexual assault and then really going after Carol's character and disparaging her, that that's within the scope of his job. Now, I know that people have said, look, the Department of Justice made similar arguments during the Clinton administration to defend President Clinton. You know, I I think we could say, one, those cases are different, but two, that doesn't mean that it's correct. And so it's that second question that has really given me a lot of pause as to why the Department of Justice is, is doing that. And Joe, I think that is our tour of the Supreme Court. 
the uh, federal judge's decision with respect to California's assault weapons ban and the update of what's happening in the Department of Justice with respect to the E. Jean Carroll suit. So I think this is my moment to thank you, Joe, to thank everybody for listening and to say that we can find Joe across the socials at In-Depth Day. Me on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And thank you, Jessica. Thanks also to our listeners for your support. If you like what you hear, please do consider liking, sharing, rating, and telling your friends about our podcast. We work hard on it, and we would love to get into as many ears as possible. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you have a great day. We'll talk to you when that next decision comes out. 